Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a man affectionately known to sports fans around the country simply as Greeny. He's, a, he's an ESPN TV and radio host, and he's got a new book coming out. It's called Got Your Number. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Greenberg. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a longtime admirer, and uh, it is a pleasure to have this chance to chat with you. Uh, Mike, I want to know about your background. I know you went to Northwestern, graduated mm-hmm. in 89, started with ESPN in 96. How did that all transpire? Do you mean how we got from Northwestern to how do we get to ESPN? Yeah, North, yes. Yeah. So, so I worked in Chicago locally for seven years. In between there, I graduated from college in 1989. Um, my, I was just telling a story, by the way, on the radio just the other day about how I got to Chicago, Evanston, Illinois, which is where Northwestern is, the, the, right before Wrigley Field got lights. So right at the end of the time where every game in Chicago was a day game on the north side anyway, and my favorite memories um, of my entire collegiate experience were in the Wrigley Field bleachers. That was where all the fun was had, Um, you know, in afternoon games and then hanging out there. But anyway, when I graduated in 89, I stayed in town and I got jobs working locally and I got, you know, I, I don't know if you feel this way. You know, maybe you wouldn't because... For professional athletes, I think it's a little bit different. Professional sports is just the ultimate meritocracy. I mean, either you're good enough or you're not, and that's it. In most other jobs like mine, I think if people uh, fail to acknowledge the impact that good fortune had on their lives, then they're either lying to you or they're lying to themselves. So I had a few very fortunate things happen. They started an all-sports radio station in Chicago, right around the time that I was just sort of getting my career rolling and I managed to find my way in there and they needed people to do all sorts of important things, things that at the time, candidly, I was by no means qualified to do, but they didn't have anyone else. And so long story short, I wound up traveling with the Michael Jordan Bulls home and road when I was 24 years old. And that was the most incredible experience I've ever had. And in those days in Chicago, I covered primarily basketball and football. So I covered the Jordan Bulls and the Mike Ditka Bears, which was the greatest education you could ever possibly have. And I covered a little baseball on on both sides of town. Actually, while I was there, um, the White Sox had some really good years while I was here. Those were the Frank Thomas, Robin Ventura, Jack McDowell, um, you know, Wilson Hernandez, Alex Fernandez, Bo Jackson, White Sox. So I, I, I was around them a little bit. Um, And so, but it was really being around Michael that got me noticed because he created so much interest and attention that people all of a sudden were interested in what I was doing. And as a consequence, one thing led to another. ESPN started this new network called ESPN News, sort of a, a fledgling sports news network in 1996. And they hired a bunch of young people from all over the country. And I was one of those. So Again, I was in the right place at the right time, and both of those things worked out really well for me, and I have been there ever since. And growing up as a kid, was it something you always aspired to do? It's like, I want to be on TV, I want to do radio, or is that something as you got older, 
you kind of fell into? It was really the sports, Brett, more than anything else for me. So I grew up in a sports crazed family. My fa- both Actually, both of my parents grew up in the Bronx and both of them were crazy Yankee fans. My father uh, dedicated his first book to Joe DiMaggio and the book had nothing to do with sports. He just dedicated it to DiMaggio because he idolized him so much. And my mother actually grew up walking distance from Yankee Stadium and she had an uncle who took her to all the Yankee games. So her favorite player was Phil Rizzuto. And so, and then, and then as time went on basketball and football, so sports was everything in my house. And my wife is sitting over here and she's nodding along as I say that all we ever talked about in my family was sports. There were, there were no other conversations um, when you were around my, particularly around my father when he was still living. And so that was always my comfort zone. And from the time I realized I wasn't going to be good enough to play point guard for the New York Knicks, which happened around the time I was nine, um, I knew there had to be a different path. And, you know, I, I think you'll find this interesting. What I have found myself thinking a little bit lately is that had I known in those days that there were going to be people like Theo Epstein and Brian Cashman and Daryl Morey and others, people who weren't players and, and, and who, who, were, who came to the sport from a different direction. I might have pursued that. You know, I never got a chance to look. I have a wonderful career. I couldn't be more grateful. I'm not in any way suggesting otherwise. But the one thing that you know that I don't know and I will never know is what it is like to win and to lose. Um, and I've, I've always been the one sort of on the outside chronicling it. And again, it's been the, it's been the thrill of all thrills. Um, but had I known that, that that was something that would be a possibility, I think that would have been a path I would have really considered. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, Epstein and, and, uh, Cashman because throughout my, my travels, you know, you meet a lot of people, they love the game. Uh, some really get it on a on almost a player level. Not you can never replace being on the field and being in the middle of it. But I've ran into a handful of guys throughout my travels uh, that really I, I kind of come away from a conversation going, "How the hell do you get it?" I said, yeah. "You're not supposed to get it. I'm supposed to be able to say things that you can't quite understand." But there are a few guys. So when you say uh, if you knew there was going to be guys like that, you might have pursued something like that. It's really interesting to me because I find the guys like a Brian Cashman sitting down. We've had him on the on the show here. Uh, he really talks intricately about things that I'm not used to non-players knowing about. It, it's fun for me to 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 hear that perspective from somebody that never played at a high level. It's, it's and in this day and age, too, Brett, like so much of that is analytics now not not that mm-hmm. specifically but so many decisions are being made could be made by people who don't have that level of intimate knowledge right. and understanding i mean daryl morey who is a northwestern guy so I, I am partial to him and he's the now the general manager of the philadelphia 76ers in basketball but previously with the houston rockets for many years he probably did more to change that sport than almost anyone else almost any player because he was really sort of at the forefront of the way um, uh, analytics have revolutionized basketball. And, you know, people always say that it's about Steph. At the end of the day, I think it's about guys who could not, who literally could never shoot a three-pointer, recognizing that the value of a three-point shot is so so much higher. Like, for example, if I told you right now that uh, there's a runner at third, 
And if you drove him in with a ground ball to the infield, that would be worth one run. But if you drove him in with a fly ball to the outfield, that would be worth two runs. Or in this case, I guess the analogy would be one and a half runs because it's it's 50% greater. It doesn't take a former player to realize you got to try and do that, right? You sure. got to try and do that as much as you possibly can. And that's the way that sport has changed. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is I think there are a lot of guys who could do that job now who don't have to have the same level of understanding of the game on a granular nation uh, nature that someone like you would. Right. And I think, you know, I'm catching up still with the analytics uh, for an X player. And I think it's pretty normal. You, you talk to a lot of them when the analytics were first coming into Bogue, uh, it, it was easy to dismiss. Oh, no, that's you know, that's not our game. And but I think that's a, an ignorant take. And I've talked to a lot of guys. I said, you know, you don't have to embrace hook, line and sinker analytics but at least educate yourself on them because I think there is a mix in there. And the ultimate mix for me is having someone that really is an astute mind uh, in the game of whatever the sport is, basketball, football, baseball, but has the ability to, to bring the analytics. And there is a mix in there that there's something uh, perfect. And I don't think anyone's figured it out yet, but, but this is just another step in that direction. I think. Look, all analytics are at the end of the day, is what happened you know i mean it it is literally just an endless collection of the data that has this is what has taken place it it cannot tell you what's going to take place beyond the 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 fact that generally speaking history tends to repeat itself if someone you know if if someone uh let's just go back to the three-pointers because it's an easy one if someone makes 50 percent of those for one year it is likely that he will make close to 50 percent of those again in the following year the, the analytics can't tell you what percentage I'm going to shoot next year, but it can tell you what I shot last year. And it can tell you what the value of that is relative to everybody else. And to not incorporate that into a, your team building and B your in-game strategy in any sport, candidly in any business is nonsensical. Now to just be completely blindly to vote devoted to it is equally nonsensical in my opinion, because you are removing one of the most important elements, particularly of sports, um, which is there are, um, which is the human element of it, which is the degree to which the circumstances are going to impact a player in his mind and what he's thinking and his ability to handle the situation in the way everything changes based upon where you are and all the rest of that. So there, you're right. There, there is, there's both an art and a science to this. Right. And some people are better at one or the other. I liked your analogy on the ground ball sacrifice fly, a run versus a run and a half. But for the hitter, it's always been that way. I get rewarded if I hit a sack fly because I'm 0 for 0 with a ribby. If yeah. I hit the ground ball, I'm desperate. I, I'm having a tough time picking up this particular pitcher. At the end of the day, uh, I'm going to take that seven hopper to shortstop because the infield's <laughs> playing back because I'm going to still get that 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 RBI. And I always mm-hmm. tell young players, I said, you know, your average goes up and down. I said, but once you get that ribby, once you get that stake, they can never take it away from you. It's never going away. Um, and just, you know, I'll touch on this a little more on the analytical side of things. I think you're correct too. And too much going all in on analytics and strictly doing that, I think you do a disservice to yourself, especially a young player. I talked to Trevor Bauer. He's totally into the analytics crazy. And I asked him, I said, too much information in the wrong hands. He said, it can be a huge detriment. It can ruin somebody's career. I see young players uh, in the baseball arena. When I played, there wasn't exit velocity. 
I knew if I hit that ball good and it went in the seats, that's good. I didn't need to know what the exit velocity was. Right, right. Today, young players especially, and it's a tool used for scouting uh, to put you in a certain group. And I see these kids at the cage, and they, you know, they're young minor league players, and they're they're uh, taking batting practice, and it's whack. And the first thing is their heads on a swivel. What was the exit velocity? Well, now they come home from a day of training, and man, their exit velocity was down two percentage points. Are they going to be able to sleep tonight? Mm-hmm. Whereas old days, we didn't have to worry about that. It was wham. Okay, that feels good. My timing's all. I, I know how it's coming off the bat. That's good. But you, you see what I'm saying? Just too much. And, and I think that comes with that comes with uh, experience going through the game. Somebody that's been in the game for 10 years in the big leagues, uh, they're not going to pay as much attention to that. They're, they're going to know their feel. They know their body. Anyway, it, it's a fun it's a fun topic. Like I said, I'm just starting to get educated on this. Um this analytical stuff. It's a lot of, it's really interesting. You talk to my brother, you know, I'll, I'll have debates with him all the time. He'll call me, ask a question. I'll tell him, well, this said, I said, I don't really care in that particular scenario, what your analytics are. And, and you know what you can do with those. And he laughed <laughs> and he goes back and forth, but uh, it's really interesting, but, but I think it's, it's here to stay. Uh, but that right mix, I think it, what it's going to be. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American express business gold card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell me about this book. I know I, I think this is your third book, and I think you were a New York Times bestseller before. We just had Tyler Kepner on New York Times bestseller, but uh, how did it come about? It's called "Got Your Number." Uh, how did this book come to fruition? So yes, uh, here's exactly what happened. So th- we were sitting around. I host a show in the mornings on ESPN called Get Up, and one day after the show was over, because we are to the point I made earlier, just a bunch of sports geeks. We actually got into a conversation, the group of us who work on the show, about how many Hall of Fame quarterbacks all wore the same jersey number. They all wore the number 12. Joe Namath, uh, Roger Staubach, Terry Bradshaw, Jim Kelly, uh, Bob Greasy, and soon to be Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, who will both wind up in the Hall of Fame. And one of the people in the conversation said, yeah, Greeny, they all wore the number 12, but who owns the number 12? And literally, it's like a light bulb went off over my head. So I, I have written several books in the past, as you mentioned, but no sports books. I've never written a book about sports. And the very simple reason is I didn't have a good enough idea. And just like that, I had the idea, which is to write a book called Got Your Number, in which I decide who owns every number in sports history from 1 to 100. So, for example, all the different players who ever wore the jersey number one in all the sports, who's the greatest of all time? 
I have a researcher named Paul Hembakitis, as everyone calls him Hembo, who is the best in the business. He did all my research for me, and I wrote 100 chapters deciding who owns each of these individual numbers. And there are plenty of baseball players in there. Some of them are quite obvious. Number two is Derek Jeter. Number three is Babe Ruth. Actually, the first three are all baseball players. Ozzie Smith is one. Derek Jeter is two. Babe Ruth is number three. But even for the ones that you, you think are obvious, some of the information that Hembo dug up for the chapters in this book boggled my mind. For example, the Babe Ruth one. I mean, you and I both know that Babe Ruth is one of the, not, not one of, he is probably the most legendary figure in the history of American sports. But there's a note in this that I thought was fascinating. During World War II, the New York Times reported the Japanese troops charging U.S. soldiers were yelling to hell with Babe Ruth. Not to hell with Roosevelt, the president, to hell with Babe Ruth. Like that's what they associated America with. Um, that's how famous he was. And of course, there are athletes from all the different sports that are in there. So that's what the book is. And it is a combination of sports debate and sports history. So the debate part is I made some tough choices. For example, 21, I will ask you. The number 21 was worn by Deion Sanders in football. It was worn by Tim Duncan in basketball. And it was worn by Roberto Clemente in baseball. Who would you give that number to? Who would you say owns that number? <clears throat> I agonized over this one. Well, I'm going to go when when I have a when I have a position like this, I just falter to to every. Oh, of course, he said that he's a baseball player. I'm going to go with Roberto Clemente, and that is who we chose. And and okay. here was the here was how I decided that that I think let's just say for the sake of argument, as players. Let's just call them equal. You can't be better than Clemente, and you can't be better than Duncan, and you can't be better than Dion was in football. So let's say not, no, no one of the three of them is definitively better. Roberto Clemente is, is probably one of the three or four most important people that ever played baseball. The impact that he had on Latin American players on, I mean, imagine the sport today without it. Um, people refer to him sometimes as the Latin American Jackie Robinson. When you consider the way that the, the, the manner in which he lived and the way in which he died delivering relief supplies to Nicaragua, which he was doing only because he felt that they were not going where they were supposed to go and that if he was there, they would actually do what they were meant to do. Dying so young as a consequence of that. To this day, baseball's humanitarian award is called the Roberto Clemente Award. Th those were the things that set it apart for me. So Duncan and Dion, either one of them would have been completely worthy choices. But what set it apart for me, for Clemente, was his impact beyond just how great a player he was. Right. So a lot of these choices were made. It's just not basically, oh, he was the greatest at that. There could be – there could be – exterior circumstances absolutely like, like you just pointed out with the, what was your did you have one that was your favorite debate out of all the numbers that was the one that I keep coming back to as being one of the hardest um that one was very hard i got lucky on 24 because kobe bryant wore two numbers <laughs> so i got to give him eight and i was able to give willie mays 24 this there was there would have been no way to do a book like this without having mays in it um so he's he was 24 um, number four was brutal, brutally hard decision to make because number four is Lou Gehrig, mm -hmm. it's Bobby Orr, and it's Brett Favre. And again, we're talking about three of the all-time greats. And in this one, I actually did go a little bit differently. I did go with the greatest player because I felt there was a differentiation that at the end of the day, Bobby Orr is the second greatest hockey player that ever lived. 
And as great as Gehrig is, and Gehrig is probably, not probably, Gehrig is the greatest first baseman that ever lived. Um, he isn't the second best baseball player that ever lived. And Brett Favre is nowhere near the second best quarterback even that ever lived and or is. And, and or there are stats in this book that will blow your mind if you don't know the history. So that's the point. So you've got the debate. The choices I made, which plenty of people will disagree with. I've already had a ton of people tell me <laughs> I got Lou Gehrig totally wrong. That absolutely right. should have been Gehrig instead of or. It is a great debate. But beyond that, whether you agree or disagree with the decisions that I made, I hope that <clears throat> what you will read will be as fascinating to you as it was to me when we did the research. You will find out things. Let me put it this way. If Brett Boone had a number in this book, you yourself would have found out things you didn't know about Brett Boone. Um, that's <laughs> how incredibly meticulous the research is. So it is uh, it is sort of equal parts sports debate and sports history. And hopefully that will make it a lot of fun. Well, it's cool, though, because I mean, right there, that just little conversation we had right there. You made a good point. Why Bobby Orr? You know, for the haters out there, how could you pick Bobby? Well, because he's the second best hockey player. He is. Oh, he is. Wait a minute. That kind of makes sense. So I, I love that having a reason why I picked it. I think that's great. I wrote a book about 10 years ago, different than yours. I kind of they, they kind of hounded me write it about. And I didn't want you know, I was just retired and I'm thinking mm -hmm. the last thing I'm going to do is go write a book. You know, it's sacred when I walk through those doors in a clubhouse. But they finally convinced me. They said, no, it'll be about your family. And I thought, you know, interesting. Uh, it could be growing up the way I did going yeah. back to grandpa. I kind of reluctantly agreed. They paid me enough. <laughs> so I sat down and I wrote it. Really educational process. I had a ghostwriter. We'd meet. We'd edit. We'd meet. We'd edit. Uh, the whole process. I ended up doing the the audio book myself. Talk about a nightmare. Yeah. Sitting there and reading it. But um, it was interesting to me. And I look back on it. It was really cool because you know what it brought up? Gramps had passed at that point. And telling the stories that when he was alive, he'd tell me that same story, you know, that Ted Williams, Brett, uh, he's the greatest. Let me tell you about this time or, 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 or whatever. And he would tell these stories 10, 20 fold. And as a kid, I'd be like, or not as a kid, now I'm in the big leagues. And I'd be like, Gramps, I've heard that story like 10 times. Once he's gone and you get a little on in life, you appreciate those things. And, and sure. just getting to go over it again and, and, relive grandpa it, it was really cool for me so in the end uh i had a good time doing it and i was reluctant for you writing a book you've read you've written several um what do you find difficult about writing a book what do you find easy well this was a very different book to write than the other ones i've done the other ones were all like creative right the, the other ones were all fiction and 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 you have to imagine a story and imagine characters and all that kind of stuff that's a completely different challenge than this one. This one was actually great fun um, because when once we had the idea, then literally, so I hired Hembo, my researcher. He went off and he came back with one and he, we would sit down. He'd say, okay, here are all the options for number one. There weren't that many for one, but here are all the options for number four, for number eight, for number 22, for number 36. And then we would choose who we liked. Some of them were pretty easy, like, Number three didn't take very long. Number 23 didn't take very long. You know, number 99 didn't take very long. It's retired across the entire sport. So those were easy. 42 didn't take us any time to figure out who we were going to do. Then he went off and did the research. He would send me the research for each individual one. And I would sit down and I would write the chapter. I wrote uh, 100 uh, chapters, each of which is right around 500 words. So they're all between two and three pages. So you can sit down and read 
two or three of them right now and then t- 10 of them tomorrow. And then, you know, he, you can literally pick it up and just read a couple of chapters anytime you want. And, and so that was really fun. The information was all sitting there in front of me. I didn't have to make up anything. Quite the opposite of that. I just really had to figure out how to best organize the information so that it would, you know, be interesting to read and not get redundant. And because you could write a lot of stats, particularly with baseball players, there were so many stats and numbers. And I tried very hard to make it a little more emotional. So, for example, right off the bat, Ozzie Smith, who was one of my favorite, I'm a Yankee fan, but he was one of my favorite players growing up. What I wrote about was that I believe he was the last player ever of a genre that doesn't exist anymore. There are no more Ozzie Smiths and there aren't ever going to be any more Ozzie Smiths. And that's something I think I miss in the sport. I miss the shortstop who hits 237, but <laughs> is, but, but literally steals a run every other day. I mean, literally probably steals 80 runs a year by playing that level of defense. And of course he hit one of the most famous home runs of all time, which I write about the only home run he ever hit left-handed. Um, but but um, that's the kind of stuff that I wanted to write about. It, it can't just be a never-ending um, recite a recitation of all the statistics because that you could, almost anyone could Google these guys and find that out. So I tried to make sure, like we said before, there's an art and a science. There are plenty of numbers in it, but I tried to put a lot of context around them, and hopefully that will make it fun. That's very cool. And your point on Ozzy Smith, he reinvented the position. Correct. Uh, and then you know, it was it, reinvented it, away from him. Right. And Cal came right after him. Right. And then came A-Rod a- and Derek Jeter and Nomar. And that was it. And then all of a sudden home run. I mean, um, shortstops were 6'2 and they weighed, you know, 210 pounds and they were hitting home runs all over the place. And that's not the game I grew up watching. And it, it is now forever going to be that game. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. But whenever something sort of fades away into the ether, I have a tendency to miss it. It, it, you talk about that Cal. I, I remember when Cal, you know, and he was the staple at shortstop for a lot of years. And it was always the exception, though. You know, it was Cal. Oh, he's big. You know, usually those shortstop. And it was at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. in my time, second basemen were my size. They were 5'10". Robbie Alomar was 5'10". Most of my peers were 5'10". If you if you were six foot six one playing second base, you were an exception. Cal was the exception. Like you said, then came A-Rod. Uh, Jeter, he's a lot bigger than people think he is. He, he is. You know, he's 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, uh, and nowadays, I mean, it's the sky's the limit. This Who's the shortstop for Pittsburgh right now? I mean, 6'7"? Yeah, yeah. Aaron, Aaron Judge playing center field at 6'8". Just a, a different era we've entered into, but uh, really cool. And, and yeah, Ozzy, I've got a, I've kind of got a special place for Ozzy, too, because I just looked to him of, of that time. And, and he was doing something that no one ever did at that position before. But, but I, don't, I, I never would miss hitting 237. <laughs> I hear you. Can I tell you one very quick Ozzy Smith sure. story? Love so it. I used to play in the, um, the Legends and Celebrity softball game for many years. We played in that on the Sunday before the All-Star game. You know, they would have that game right. where a bunch of like TV actors would play with a bunch of old, a bunch of old ball players. Paul Molitor would play and. Um, one year's all these guys, Gary Carter back, you know, but God rest his soul. He was playing in that goose gossage. All these guys, some guys would play. And my only hope, all I wanted when I was standing at the plate was to hit the ball to a legend. I wanted to ground out to Ozzy. I didn't, I didn't delude myself that I was going to hit a home run. I wanted to hit the ball to Ozzy Smith. I wanted to be able to say that Paul Molitor threw me out. Like that's what I wanted in life. Instead in my three at bats, 
I grounded out to a Backstreet Boy. I Marsha Brady. That, I popped no, out. I wasn't Marsha Brady, but I did. I, I grounded out to a Backstreet Boy. I popped out to a member of NSYNC, and I hit a solid line drive that the comedian Billy Crystal snagged, and that was it. Those are my three at-bats. I'm 0 for 3, and I never once hit the ball to an actual baseball player, and that broke my heart. <laughs> and you were trying to. Oh, I had Ozzy. I can see Ozzy playing short. I'm just trying as hard as I can. Hit it to short. Hit it to short. Instead, I popped it up to the third baseman, who was one of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> that was a huge disappointment. All right, I was thinking about this when you were coming on today, and I was thinking about something fun to do. In spirit of the book, I've got some debate. You up for it? Go. Cool, let's do it. All right, and I'll start off, you know, kind of kind of dorky. First one is position, spirit of the book, number eight. Best center fielder in the history of baseball. There's a lot to choose from. The best center fielder in the history of baseball is Willie Mays. Um, I, 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 and I'll turn to the chapter very quickly here, but Willie Mays – I like uh, I'll give you a couple of numbers on, on Willie Mays. Um, Willie Mays, here's, I mean, most people know some of them, you know, how many home runs he had. Let me tell you this. Willie Mays led his league in home runs and steals four times each. He's the only player in history to do that. He led the major leagues in steals in the decade of the fifties. And he led the major league in home runs for for the decade of the 50s. So he had more home runs and stole more bases. Think about that combination for a minute than any other player in the decade of the 50s. He also, for his career, won 12 gold gloves in a row and recorded 7,112 putouts, a record that will never be broken. So I think Willie Mays is inarguably the greatest center fielder of all time. And as the first one I get, that was kind of easy. I mean, okay. Griffey, Griffey's probably a close, but yeah, I've got to give it to Willie Griffey without the injuries. We might be talking a different, yeah, differently, I agree but, with that. but uh, yeah, both sides of the ball. Uh, you know, I got to play with some great center fielders. Griffey was one of them. I got to play with Mike Cameron and uh, Torrey Hunter. And I played with Andrew Jones for a year in 1999. And the one funny story about the Willie Mays that I that I tell to this day from a defensive standpoint. Now, all around, Andrew Jones can't be in the same conversation as Willie Mays, but defensively only. I remember we were, we were playing a game. I forget if it was spring training or or during the regular season. Anyway, Andrew makes a play. And I'm just coming off playing with with Junior Griffey, who's pretty damn good. And I'm watching Andrew now play on a daily basis. And I was amazed. I was amazed. And I remember, yeah, I remember Bobby Cox turns to somebody in the dugout and says, Willie Mays, my ass. And I, and I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, exactly what I said. I've seen Willie Mays play, and I watch his Andrew Jones kid. And Andrew at the time was like 23, 24 years old. Mm-hmm. And he said, Willie Mays, my ass. And I went, that is well, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty good statement coming from a guy that's seen both. All right. Best ballpark in the big leagues. I really, I mean, it's, it's a shame that there has been so little success in it. I really like the park in Pittsburgh. Um, have you been, I'm not sure if you've been to PNC Park. I've been, I really yeah, I got, like I got to play there at the end of my career. It was, that's a really nice ballpark. Yeah. Everybody loves Camden Yards. I have no argument with that. Um, people rave about the new ballpark in San Francisco. I have not been there. I'm, I'm partial to the old Yankee Stadium. I mean, I grew up going to Yankee Stadium with my parents. That was incredible. The new Yankee Stadium is not that at all. Um, I still like going to games there, but I think that's probably more my own emotion. 
But there's no question what my number one ballpark is, and I mentioned it earlier, and that's Wrigley Field. It, there is no experience. What What is it like to play there? Obviously something I've never had the opportunity to do. To, 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 to cover a game, which I did forever, and to attend games as a fan, Wrigley Field is is first and nothing is second, and then we could argue over what's third. Well, I think, you know, as a player, it's different because when you're in the game, and, and I, I, I finally stopped at a few venues. I remember going to Fenway Park during a pitching change and a day game at Fenway Park. I appreciated the history that's in here. I did that. I love playing at Wrigley, but they've redone that. It, it was like you, you needed a tow rope to get to home plate from the on-deck circle. It was uneven. <laughs> There were lip place. Defense was a nightmare. You never knew when it was going to hit a lip. But I'll tell you what, if that wind was blowing out, it was like a wiffle ball game. And I loved playing there. For me, though, and it's just because I can close my eyes and I know where I'm at, old Yankee Stadium. I walked into the new Yankee Stadium, never played a game there. But I remember when Aaron first got the job, I went to go see him, and I'm walking through the tunnel. And a lot of the old security guards from my playing days are still working the stadium. So, hey, Booty, what's up? We haven't seen you. You know, and I said, uh, new stadium or old? 10 out of 10 guys, if I asked 10 guys, said it wasn't even a question. He said, it's not even a question. Old Yankee Stadium. There's something special about it. Uh, I can't explain it to people, but uh, I got to put Yankee. If I can play one game before before it's all said and done, I'm going back to old Yankee Stadium. But if I need a hit, I'm going to play in Anaheim. I just I I couldn't have a bad series in Anaheim. That that's that's my list right there. It's a ballpark I've never been to, but you know the, the players are always going to lean. To, it's sort of like what's your favorite golf course? It's the one where you played best, right? So, I, without I, I, a doubt, without a doubt. Of me. When we go on our European golf trips or whatever it is, whatever, we're always at the end of the trip. It's always what was your favorite golf course? And I will pick mine, and it is always the one where I shot the lowest score. It has to be uh, best play by play man, history of baseball. Well, so I'm I'm very very partial to Harry Carey. So when I got to Chicago in in the mid '80s, I, I sometimes jokingly say Harry Carey was my first friend in Chicago, even though I never met him in person. Um, but I quickly discovered that he would do the games on Channel Nine, and they were all in the afternoon. And you know, when you first get to college, you you know you're a little lonely and away from home and all that. And he was just the most entertaining most wonderful thing in the world. Although I always also say that to me, baseball will always sound like Phil Rizzuto's voice because he did the Yankee games when I was growing up on Channel 11 and on the radio in New York. And so um, it would be it would be Harry Carey and Phil Rizzuto now um, clearly the best of all time or the greatest of all time. Best means your own personal taste. Um, there will never, ever be anyone like Vince Scully. I mean, Vince Scully actually has a number in the book Vince Scully has number 67 in this book because he broadcast Dodger games for 67 years um, and uh, probably in that regard touched more sports fans with his voice than any other human being that ever lived. So um, the greatest of all time, I think, is Vince Scully, but my favorite will always be Harry. Yeah, Vin, Vin, it was amazing to me, Vin, because he did it alone. He did everything by himself. The best. And I, mean, and I still I, – I, I can still – I can – I can hear him right now when I'm walking. I just had a bat at bat and I'm walking up 
uh, into the Dodger visiting clubhouse and I hear Vince Scully on the radio and he's just going on and on about, and this young fella back in, you know, the Connie Mack world series in 1984. Yeah. And I'm going, how does he know all this stuff? Well, cause that's what he did and that's what he loved. All right, moving on. Uh, goat of all goats. You can pick anyone, any sport. I think the when you were talking about Ruth, I was thinking about this question because everybody today is the obvious is Jordan. But uh, your thought, goat of all goats. It's so hard. Like, I mean, it's it's probably I would probably say Jordan, but I don't think you would be wrong if you said Wayne Gretzky, because I think that the space between Gretzky and, and the second greatest hockey player of all time is far greater than the space between Jordan and the second greatest basketball player of all time. In fact, there are some people who are trying to make a legitimate argument that, that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player of all time and has to be in the discussion. Um, I think, I mean, if we're going to use individual, like, I don't even want to, I don't want to confuse it because if you start bringing in like Olympic athletes, you know, you now start bringing in Michael Phelps, and, and people like that, which which make it very complicated because no one ever did anything better than he did what he did. But how do you compare that to Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky? It's almost impossible to do. So if we're going to limit it to team sports, I think I would say Michael Jordan, but I think the right answer is actually Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty. And, and I was thinking about this before the Ruth analogy, because anytime you're referred to as Ruthian. Yeah. You've arrived. And I, and I think the GOAT argument is not only the greatest, but all-encompassing. Yeah. Just like you mentioned, it's got, there's got to be external things, like something about that guy, the it factor. is just you say his name. You know, Tiger's definitely in that argument, without a doubt. Uh, but other, you know, baseball players, as great as they are, as great as, you know, Bonds, and, and it didn't have a good relationship with the media. Uh, my era – the greatest player I've ever seen, and no one was even close, especially from a hitting standpoint, was Barry Bonds. You look at the guys today, like a Mike Trout, uh, an Aaron Judge. Yes, they're great, but they're not in that Jordan conversation for some reason. The all-encompassing doesn't come there. The only one for me was Ruth, uh, but I'm going to go with Jordan as well. Um, I got a few more. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. We're going to go off the sports grill, and we're going to go to best Sports Center anchor. Of all time. I've got a lot of favorite ones. You're going to have a, an interesting take on this one. Well, you know. That's or you might one. not even be able to pick. Yeah. I mean, you know, look. I don't know if he was the best, but because of the circumstances, he certainly was as good as anybody ever was. And because of the circumstances, I usually think of Stuart Scott when we have these conversations. Um, Stuart was a great friend and a, and, a, and a great person. And what happened to him was just so unjust and painful to watch for all of us and you know we have so many of us have gotten to know his daughters now over the years and um so it's very hard for me not to think of him when you ask the question but i will say that before i came to espn when my aspiration was to be a sports center anchor the guys that i watched were keith alberman and dan patrick when they used to do the 11 o'clock sports center in fact when i came and i auditioned in 96 they put you on the set and they and, and they sit you down and they have you do a little bit of a sports cast and I remember telling everybody I was in Keith's chair. I was in Keith's chair. So, um, you know, those guys were larger than life. And then and Chris Berman, he built the place. So I think he's more remembered now for other things besides Sports Center. But if we're going to include that, 
those are sort of the OGs that come immediately to mind. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't pick between those. I mean, I, you know, again, Stuart was such a great guy. If you knew him, you would have loved him. I don't know. Maybe you did know him. Um, he was such a good person that it, it wouldn't feel right to ever put anybody. And he was, he was so good at the job too. Like I, I worked with him a little bit and people always associated him just with sort of the, the hip hop catchphrases, which obviously is what made him famous. But he was actually really, really good as someone who does that for a living. He was really good at the fundamentals of it, too. You know, um, so I, I, I will in his honor, I will say Stuart Scott. You know, the most I've heard when I ask this question to a lot of the anchors, when I ask Linda Cohn or Charlie Snyder, it, it usually goes to Keith Olbermann. But they do have that that story that you had about Stuart Scott. I don't know. For me. When was ESPN most influential in my life? When I signed in 1990 and I I was in the minor leagues and it was a different era and it was a different world. We didn't have these phones to get everything at our fingertips. Man, we'd play that minor league game in in the Carolina League and I busted home because I got to watch SportsCenter tonight. I got to see what the big boys are doing because I'm going to be in that big stage one day. And, and man, I, I could even pick one if I had to. I mean, I loved Steiner for different reasons. I mean, he just cracked me up. Linda Cohn. I always loved Linda Cohn for some reason. You know, it was just so many guys. And uh, it was almost like a a Saturday night Saturday night live of, of sports. You know, oh, yeah. there were so many different characters. Really cool. All right, I'm going to wrap it up with my last question. Two sport athletes. I think it goes without saying, uh, you know, there's the Deion Sanders who played too, was very good. Uh, Brian Jordan, who doesn't get that much love out there. But I I think we probably agree that Bo Jackson is the best two sport uh, player ever cut short, obviously, by the injury. But it seems like everything starts with baseball. And, And I think for the layman, for the average question out there, the average fan, who's the best athlete? They always go, oh, Jordan or, or, or something like that. Who are the best athletes? You notice all the two-sport athletes. It always involves baseball. Who are the best athletes in your opinion? Meaning of, of, in which sport do you find the most athletic people? And like the greatest athletes play which sport? Yes, and I'm interested for your take on why. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how to answer that exactly. Um Baseball is, is look, you would know bet, it literally a million times better than I would. It seems to me baseball is much more about skill. It is a skill uh, first and foremost. You can be the greatest athlete in the world and not be able to play baseball. In fact, I witnessed that myself. I spent a lot of time around Michael Jordan when he was trying to play baseball. The, the way to become a great baseball player is not necessarily by being the best athlete. Um, it requires entirely different things. The, the, the skills you have are completely different than the skills that someone who plays basketball has or football. Football is, of the sports that we commonly cover, football, I think, is the most physically demanding. What, what these guys put their bodies through is, it, I mean, it's not, it's not human. It's certainly not healthy. Um, and at times, it's actually actively difficult to watch. Um, I covered plenty of football training camps, and it was unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think I probably would just default to saying basketball because there is a we tend to associate that stuff with the gracefulness. Look, what the hockey players do is pretty unbelievable. When you consider the combination of the hand-eye cord, it is almost baseball caliber hand-eye coordination to do what they do with the stick and the puck. The ability to the, the skating is a whole different skill, obviously, and the speed with which they do that and the agility. 
And then the physical punishment that at the highest levels of the sport, these guys also have to withstand. If you wanted to make an argument for that, I'm not the person to do it, but if you wanted to make an argument for that, you could probably defend that one too. Yeah, I, I, I hear it all the time, and, and I've been thinking about it a lot. I said, well, let's pick a Mike Trout. Seems pretty athletic to me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, arguably, my opinion, the watching as much as I do, when healthy, the best player in baseball, all-around player. I think if Mike Trout trained for it and needed to go out for a pass in the NFL, he, he could do that. You put him on a basketball court, I think he could not completely embarrass himself. And I think about that all the time with baseball players. Then I switch the position, put any basketball player, any football player into a batter's box and get a hit. They've got no chance. Oh, yeah. No, they've got no chance. So I'm defaulted and I would say baseball players. are the yeah, best That's what athletes. I mean. That, <laughs> athletes is a relative, you know, because that's it's not when we think of athletes, we tend to think, well, who is the fastest? Who is the But but baseball requires a set of skills that are so, so unique. Um and look, I mean, Ted Williams said the hardest thing to do is to hit a round bat with a round ball, and it probably is. Um, so, yes, you are correct. A basketball, most athletic baseball players could survive on a basketball court. They, they, they would be obviously the worst one out there, but they wouldn't necessarily have zero chance of accomplishing anything. I remember watching Michael Jordan, who was my idol, my hero. I revered him, and I do to this day. What I learned from watching him was the instincts that are involved in playing baseball. So I, I was covering him in these little spring training ballparks, and the press box, I remember one day, was right behind home plate. So I'm looking right out. I have the same vantage point that a catcher would have, but I'm upstairs. Off the crack, Michael is playing center field. Or he may have been playing left field. I forget. It doesn't matter. Off the crack of the bat, he was always running the wrong way. Like, like he always did. It always took him like two steps, and then he stopped and went back the other way. And when you watch you guys, and not just at the major league level, but down into the into the lower minor league levels, crack of the bat, everyone on the field knows exactly where the ball is going to go. Literally exactly where it's going to wind up or pretty close. And people who, who don't have that, I don't know. I mean, obviously, that probably has to do with having been out there, you know, for the 10,000 hours or whatever it is that you get. But that was that was when I really noticed it. Michael Jordan, the ball would be hit and he would always take two steps the wrong way before he would then go back and get it. And as a consequence, let's just say for the sake of argument, over 162-game season, that's probably something close to 162 hits that your team allows that they otherwise wouldn't. Um, and that's something that I don't know that enough people recognize either. Well, I think Jordan in that time, it was interesting. I was a young player. I got to – I went down. He was playing in the Arizona Fall League, and he was playing against my brother's team at the time. And I was just in town to watch, went into the visiting clubhouse, the club. He said, hey, Michael wants to meet you. And he had questions about the game. And it was interesting to me. I'm, I'm sitting there kind of now I'm the big guy like, oh, the greatest basketball player in the world needs a tip. Um, but it just goes to show you how hard it is. And I don't see his he went to double A Birmingham, which yeah. is double A is a tough level. You haven't played in a long time. I mean, I think he hit 180 or 190 or whatever he did. But the most fascinating stat to me is he drove in 50 runs. There's a lot of minor league players that in their career never had a year where they drove in 50, 50 runs. And they did that for a living. You know, they were professionals. So I don't look at his experiment as a complete failure. Yeah, he was probably right there uh, of one of the probably the worst player in, in the Southern League that year. 
but he drove in 50 runs. And I always say that. I said, not too many. A lot of guys out there can't say they ever drove in 50 runs in the Southern League. So I don't think that's fair. They may have been failure. walking guys to get to him, but okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he drove help. in 50 runs. You still <laughs> got to knock him. Runs. You still got to hit that ground ball or get the point and a half with the new yeah. analytics hit the fly ball. So. That's 50 more than I would have driven in. So I got, I have no complaints there. Well, Mike Greenberg, this it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on coming on the show. Uh, I believe the book's coming out April 4th. That's correct. Tuesday, April 4th. It is called Got Your Number, and it is available for pre-order now anywhere you get your books. Best of luck. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And uh, to all of us here at the Boot Podcast, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.